Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Carl Slaney with Laurentian Legacy Tours out of St. Lawrence. Carl's from St. Lawrence and was a traveling construction worker for 30 years. He volunteered with the St. Lawrence Historical Advisory Committee uh, a few years ago and became enamored with the history of St. Lawrence. Since then, he's been volunteering with the local historical group and working on the trail systems to help develop and explore the story of the Truxton and Pollux disaster, an incredible story familiar to many in Newfoundland. And Carl is with me here today to talk about that disaster and the Laurentian Legacy Tours. I want to have a chat with you about the the incredible story of the Truxton and Pollux and, and the, the events that followed uh, that to give listeners a bit of a sense of the, the story, where, where does the story begin? What, what is the Truxton and Pollock story? So the Truxton and Pollock, the story is huge, but yeah. the St. Lawrence component of it was in 1942. February 18, 1942, a terrible winter storm, as uh, the Bjorn Peninsula is common to have, and uh, a group of vessels, American vessels, uh, became uh, shipwrecked on the coast. So that's the very brief commentary. In the longer uh, version of the story, uh, upon reflection and over time, investigations happened, of course, because of this massive naval disaster, it turns out that these vessels were leaving uh, in Maine, heading to Argentia. Right. Along the way, there was a, like most disasters, there's not one reason or one cause there was a, a many errors that lined up that resulted in the ships being 30 or 40 miles off course which ended up landing them on the beaches and on the cliffs adjacent to St. Lawrence um, the reaction by the people of the community uh, was heroic and resulted in saving 186 sailors Right, but unfortunately uh, 203 sailors died. Yeah. So this is right right in the middle of the of the war. This is when this is happening. Well, the war the war effort had been ongoing. The war had been uh, ongoing for some time and obviously the, the uh, war effort was supported by supply chain from from North America. Yeah. So that was another key component of the things that caused this disaster was the actions of the German U-boats in the area around St. Lawrence. These German U-boats were patrolling all of the North Atlantic, including uh, the Gulf of St. Lawrence and even up as far as Montreal, to yeah. try to disrupt the supply chain to Europe. So a lot of the goods that were created in uh, North America heading towards Europe, fueling the, uh, the, uh, the war effort. And the Germans were intent upon uh, disrupting that supply. That impacted the building of these bases all over the world, including many in Newfoundland. Uh, the ma- naval uh, base in Argentia was huge, and it was strategically located to both help protect the supply chain going to Europe and also as a base to uh, prevent these uh, any kind of an invasion or and, and as a, a supply base right right yeah so Newfoundland at the time obviously had very little infrastructure so the Americans came in and set up their own 
system, and basically it was a significant sized community in Argentia to support the war effort in this area, in this region. Yeah. Uh, the U- German U-boats mean sank several vessels uh, in Newfoundland and vessels belonging to the Canadian and the American uh, uh, navies and merchant vessels that were sank. I mean, the caribou, sinking of the caribou was uh, later in 1942. Right, yeah. Uh, there were several vessels sank in uh, Belle Island associated with the Germans trying to interrupt the supply of iron ore that would fuel the steel-making industry. So the actions of the Germans in Newfoundland and in the area of the North Atlantic was, was common, and it was a, a, a big factor in the causing of this disaster. So take, take me to that night, if you will, that, that stormy, terrible night. For people who aren't familiar with the geography, can you describe the, the area where the, where the disaster happened? Okay. So... On the bigger picture, uh, St. Lawrence is about 80 miles or so from Argentia. Placentia Bay is between St. Lawrence and Argentia. Placentia Bay is the biggest bay in Newfoundland, and it's you know 70 or 80 miles wide. The intention of the vessels was to go up through the middle of Placentia Bay in the dark, end up coming into Argentia during early morning and daylight of the following day. Unfortunately, uh, in retrospect, there was errors along the way. Uh, one of the errors pointed to in different research uh, papers and some of the books that's written on the topic was a navigational error that happened off Nova Scotia. If you left Boston or Maine generally, you're coming up the eastern seaboard of the United States. So you go along by Nova Scotia and then you end up coming towards the tip of the Bjorn Peninsula as to just to lay the geography of the east coast of uh, North America. So, a navigational errors, the, the, the systems of navigation in those days was dead reckoning. Basically, they're taking positions from stars. So, offshore Nova Scotia, as they were coming by, the storm was beginning, and they took a set of readings, erroneously set themselves at a, at a, at a, off a, at a position that they didn't, that was incorrect. Mm-hmm. And if in normal circumstances, in six or seven hours, you would have taken a second reading realized your error and made a correction it wouldn't have been no big deal but the storm shut, shut down no visibility to stars no opportunity to take uh, another reading and correct that error so that error is an angular problem and as the angle as the distance increased the angular it problem magnifies, magnifies problem. itself yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's why they ended up so far off another uh, contributing factor to the, to the uh, disaster was that the Americans were just getting into World War II, and a lot of the sailors that were on these vessels was a combination of young recruits and older, uh, more seasoned men. But a lot of these younger sailors had very little training, uh, were given tasks that were significantly impacting the, the, uh, the uh, I guess, the navigation and the safety of the vessel, and there wasn't there were the errors uh, separately wouldn't have mattered much, but collectively they caused this disaster, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, which which ship uh, struck first? What do you do? We have so, a, an order of events for yeah. the night. In the sequence, the three vessels were traveling in in uh, in a parallel to each other. The supply vessel was the Pollux. Now she was a, a vessel that 
carried all of the goods. Uh, the list of uh, what her cargo was is an American military secret. But there was known to be uh, lots of food on board, all the supplies that run Argentia. So there was aircraft parts, there was uh, military jeeps. This was a substantial sized vessel. She was uh, a, a very, very uh, big vessel. And she was, I believe she was a hundred and... Uh, 40 meters hmm. so that's a significant size vessel the other two uh, were uh, navy vessels and, and destroyers and they were in the order of 100 meters so the, the Pollux was the the supply vessel the Pollux was the supply vessel and the, the other two were the, the armed guards right. so basically they were put in place to protect the supply the, the actual the terms that were used by the Americans I mean this was a grocery run and the groceries was in the <laughs> in the pollux, right? Yeah. So in their terminology, that's what they refer to, to it as. And the two vessels, the two destroyers, were were uh, armed guards right. and hoping to prevent any problems, but primarily protection from these German U-boats that were known to be patrolling the area. Um, the uh, Truxton was an older vessel. She had been involved in World War One. She was an older vessel, but she was in great shape the military did good work uh, maintaining her so she was more than suitable for the task she'd been through uh, Argentia several times and made runs up to Iceland so she spent a lot of her time in military service in the Pacific but in this case uh, she was working in the North Atlantic she was perfectly suited for that the other vessel was the Wilkes the Wilkes was a relatively new vessel she was a state-of-the-art as far as the uh, military uh, destroyers, and she was outfitted with new radar technology only six weeks earlier. Uh, this new technology was put on while she was on refit in New York. And while she was on refit in New York, they basically downmanned her, took all the crew off while she was at refit, and when they crewed her back up, they took a core group of, seri- of seamen that had some experience, and then basically filled the gaps with all inexperienced seamen. The vessel itself was the lead vessel because she was the newer and the most modern vessel. And the commander of that vessel, the commander of the convoy was on the Wilkes. And the Wilkes was the lead vessel. And in military terms, Mr. Walter Webb was the commander of all the three vessels. And in military uh, terms, he was the boss he was very regimented military discipline-wise. And whatever he said was what went, and that was part of the problems. The Pollux itself was more, had more of a merchant background. She was a vessel that had been bought by the American uh, Navy to use in this, this way. But she had a lot of her crew were serious seamen who weren't military by nature. And some of those guys, the navigator specifically, thought for sure that they were in trouble. And although he made known his complaint that they were probably off course and begged the commander to allow him to go further out into Byzantium Bay, further out into the Atlantic, uh, he was just looked down upon because he wasn't military. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't part of the regiment. And Mr. Walter Webb stuck by his course all along the way. So when things went... Wrong. They went wrong. They quite went badly. really yeah. wrong. Yeah, and uh, like I say, 
they came out of Nova Scotia in uh, later in in the day, and then dur- during the night they were in the, the Newfoundland portion of the, of the voyage. It was uh, 409, 411, and 417 when the ve- three vessels hit the rocks. 409 was the Truxton, and 411 was the uh, Wilkes, and 417 I believe was the Pollux. And so, this and and where they where they hit is not a good <clears throat> spot. To... It's actually the very worst place yeah uh, i've been out there many times and talking to some of the local fishermen and, and just some people who, who observe if i mean by the grace of god if they had been a kilometer further south they would have missed all of this end up up in the middle of Ascension bay daylight would have come they would have realized they were a little bit off course and it would have been adjusted and that would have been the end of it even literally where the Truxton ended up. The Truxton ended up in a C-shaped cove, and if she had cleared the edge of that uh, C-shaped cove by 50 yards, she'd have ended up on a place in the back of a place called Hare's Ears, and those guys could have walked home. Right. Right, no cliffs. The the, the uh, water gradually gets more shallow, if she hadn't ran in there, she'd have been beat up and been in trouble. But those men, you know, the the, the chances of survival would have increased magnificently for those folks. So, so the ships ran into this this trouble here in this in this cove. The cliffs on on the side. Uh, tell me about the rescue effort then. How how did the people in Saint Lawrence know that something was wrong? <clears throat> okay, so it's uh, like I say, it's February 18, The vessel, the Truxton, primarily. It's closest to the St. Lawrence, the community and a mine that was local to that area called Orange Springs. So when the vessel hit 4 o'clock in the morning, obviously they were under uh, radio silence. They were trying to maintain uh, no communications for fear of the the, uh, U-boats and the German uh, activities in the area. So they turned on the floodlights and realized where, that they had been run ashore. And they, when they turned it on first, they just saw this big white wall and maybe thinking icebergs and those types of thoughts. But eventually, obviously, they realized where they were. The vessel itself was jammed between two small islands that are in that area. Um, the vessel was hard aground, but she was still being lifted and pounded into the rocks. They put the vessel in reverse, hoping to back her out of there, but the two propellers got entwined into the shallow rocks that were there, and she was totally immobile. Uh, when they turned on the lights, they realized they were in big problems, so they started a, a, a plan, making a plan. The vessel was sitting kind of true uh, in uh, relative to her normal operating position, so she was the, the skipper uh, didn't really think that they were in immediate danger and began a plan to try to see how they could get out of this. Uh, when they turned on the searchlights towards the cliffs, they realized they were only 100 yards or so from shore. So maybe they could do something to help themselves. But again, <clears throat> in their background, <clears throat> the power of the American military is always their ace card. They always held out hope that the Americans were going to come and save them. And unfortunately, in this circumstance, they just didn't. Mm. Uh, when they started coming towards daylight, they realized that uh, they basically gathered up whatever resources they had as far as uh, <clears throat> attempting their self-rescue. So the storm and 
the collision with the rocks had damaged some of the lifeboats. They only had, really only had two life rafts left. So in the daylight hours, just as daylight become, become available, they started thinking about how can we get a line ashore and how can we get people ashore and begin to evacuate this vessel because she was getting, things. the situation was getting worse by the minute. The vessel itself was leaking oil into this uh, into the seawater, and uh, that was creating a, a significant problem uh, along the edge of the beach. Like I mentioned, this C-shaped cove created this area where the oil stayed aligned the edge of the shore. A little pocket of so oil. Yeah. created a berm almost between the ocean and the land. Hmm. So that became a significant factor in the rescue as well. So when daylight came, they started realizing that, you know, maybe we can make it. Uh, the wind was southeast and significant. Uh, during the storm, it was uh, recorded in, in lots of the commentary from both the Newfoundlanders and the Americans. Uh, they are guessing that it's around 100 miles an hour. Seas around the order of 45 or 50 feet. So it was a horrible circumstance. The waves, the way the waves were coming, <clears throat> the this C-shaped cove has a, a beach on its most eastern side that is favorable, not ideal, but favorable. As you go around the C-shaped cove, the other beaches are really horrific. Uh, one of them is at the base of a cliff that's probably in the order of 400 feet straight up. Cliff, no, no uh, loose rubble or anything, it's just a sheer face. So that type of position is a death sentence anybody ended up in there and unfortunately too many of them got washed out and ended up in there as the vessel uh, as daylight came up on the vessel they called for volunteers to take a life raft it was a 15 man life raft so they called upon volunteers and there was two volunteers that decided they would try it so instead of coming and allowing the waves to just take them into the shore they targeted this particular beach that's further to the east so when they left the vessel, instead of going towards the land, they basically went back out to sea to get away from the vessel, get into a little bit deeper water, combat the waves and the wind, and then allow the, the wind and the waves to bring them in onto the beach that they preferred. They did this towing a small line from the vessel. So it's unsure how long it took them, but these two gentlemen were successful in making it to the beach. When they got to the beach, this, they towed a small line. It was about three-eighths of an inch in diameter. So that small line is a, the messenger line. And when they got on the beach, they continued to haul in a bigger line from the vessel with the encouragement of the people on the vessel. The people on the trucks obviously were uh, hoping that this was going to be a success. When they got on the, the, the beach, they were obviously wiped out. They were soaking wet. They were full of oil. But they continued to manage to pull the line in and then eventually pulled in this bigger line, a big three-inch line. Had to have a break three or four times along the way because they were exhausted from the, basically from the rowing the, the raft to try to get ashore. And then all this activity on the beach. They managed to get the line ashore. Took a turn around a large rock that was there in the center of the beach and basically collapsed, uh, worn out. Back on the vessel, the men were getting rafts ready to hit eight rafts on the vessel but six of them had been damaged to the point of uselessness so they only had two hmm. first one went over the side immediately the waves tipped it over 
So they managed to get that upright and got it stabilized. And the, the skipper still never gave an abandoned ship. So this was all volunteers. So 10 men got into the first raft with the lifeline ashore. They managed to pull themselves ashore. So they pulled themselves ashore successfully. This is 10 extra men now on the beach. The next uh, boat is getting ready. And as they get the second boat ready, the 10 men on the beach begin to look at opportunities to <clears throat> create a fire. What resources do they have? Is there any way up over the cliff? Those types of things were starting to happen. When the second raft ended up going towards the beach, the another 10 men and on that vessel, on the second raft, was a guy named Peterson, a guy named Bergeron, and a guy named Lanier Phillips. These people ended up on the beach. Now you got 20 people on the beach. In the meantime, Bergeron was the first up over the cliff. Bergeron was a younger man. Him and this guy Peterson ended up going up over the cliff. They were in uh, younger people in good shape. And basically made it up over the cliff and uh, found an, an old fishing shed or a hay shed that was just in that area, but there was not nothing else around. They got into this shed and basically uh, that shed became a center part of this whole rescue. But the story of uh, the, the raft situation, when the second raft came to the beach, the skipper gave an order to tie the two rafts together. People on the beach didn't like this idea, but the skipper's idea was that we could pull two of them back and forth and just move people quicker. When they pulled the, tied the two rafts together, fastened them to the line to pull them back to the vessel, started pulling them out, and they got stuck halfway. The lines got entwined, and it just became impossible to pull them out. So the skipper gave the order to the beach, cut the lifeline, see if we could get the life rafts back. They cut the lifeline, and they couldn't get the life rafts back. By this time, the line had been entwined into the bottom of the some of the rocks on the bottom of the shore, the ocean, and the, the life rafts had just drifted away, went in and got beat up on the rocks and were useless. Now you got only 20 men on the beach, or 22 men on the beach, and all these men, 156 men on the vessel in total. Mm. So all these men were on the vessel and at the mercy of the ocean. So this is where the Newfoundlanders, they, they made contact with Newfoundlanders uh, by Mr. Bergeron, who was a young man in good shape. He's, I believe he's only 18 years old, and he managed to go about... Uh, in the order of three or four kilometers along the shore in a snowstorm and managed to see uh, the workings and the head frame associated with the Orange Springs mine. And as he made his way to Orange Springs mine, uh, coincidentally and fortunately, uh, it was a shift change. So the men had worked all night underground, were coming up from underground, and their colleagues had walked in from the community to go to work. So there was a mix of the two shifts at the time that these these Americans showed up. So it was a good resource, a great uh, opportunity to have all these men together. So you had a hundred some odd men that were available uh, immediately on assessment of the uh, situation. The mine manager shut the mines down and basically turned all the resources of the mine towards this rescue. Uh, so that was the setup of the beginning of the rescue efforts. Now, I mm. want to... I, I, we could, I know there's so much history here that we could go into. What I, what I want to do is maybe jump mm. ahead a little bit. And I want to know about 
what's what's happening now? What are you doing now to tell this story and the story of the rescue? If I'm a tourist to St. Lawrence, how do I how do I learn the rest of the story? Yeah, well, like you say, uh, the interest in uh, our history, I guess, in Newfoundland is. I believe has increased over the last number of years. The situation in St. Lawrence is uh, really becoming uh, a lot more uh, known to the people of St. Lawrence and the people of Bjorn Peninsula and people of Newfoundland, and we want to share it around the world. Uh, this is a good, uh, good situation that we can re- reflect upon the, uh, the characteristics of our forefathers, <clears throat> the way they behaved under duress, the way they reacted to uh, fellow citizens that are in uh, fellow uh, human beings that are in distress. I think in the time, some of these uncertain times uh, that our world is going through, that this story is a, is a, a very important story to maintain and to tell uh, the rest of the world. Um, in the last few years, there's been, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, there's a trail system that's been built around this whole uh, area of Chambers Cove. So Chambers Cove got a lot of features. And one of them is this naval disaster. It's also the very center of our fishery. That area of uh, real estate is at the center of our fishery. It's also at the center of our mining history. It's also locations where, unfortunately, we've lost Newfoundlanders and uh, in that area who've been fishing and been bird hunting and all that kind of stuff. So that area is kind of a, a sacred place to the people of St. Lawrence. And we want to share that story and those stories. Um, the people of St. Lawrence, I, I doubt if there's any population uh, in Newfoundland or anywhere else that have went through all the hardships that these folks have went through over the years. And the story that these, the, the triumph that these people made a success of life after being dealt the cards that they were dealt with. They were dealt, I mean, the, the, the uh, tidal wave of 1929, on a few, uh, November 19th, 1929 wiped out the fishery, wiped out all the infrastructure, totally changed the economy. These people had to abandon, basically, uh, a way of life and try to find something else. And this is the beginning of the mining industry. And this is all centered around this whole area of Chambers Cove. Mm-hmm. And those stories and those realities, uh, it's, it's just amazing how these people could turn on a dime. So, so tell me about the tour then. If I'm coming as a tourist, what, what will I experience? Okay, so the, the tour is, uh, I offer the tour to walk to Chambers Cove. We'll walk and we'll stand and uh, point to the rocks and the exact locations where all these activities happen. Uh, in St. Lawrence, we've got a miners museum, and the miners museum has a combination of uh, minor memorabilia, and you got a section that's dedicated to this Truxton and Pollock story because it's also intertwined. Yeah. Uh, so if you stop by the Miners Museum, they'll set you up with my contacts. Uh, I work in partnership with those folks, so we've got a group there that work together in groups. Uh, I provide the tour. There's a gift shop there that sells some different uh, souvenirs and those types of things. Uh, the gift shop is run by a group called uh, 3L. And uh, they got a uh, they got a manufacturing facility there where they make jewelry from Forsberg. So they make products in the back room there and uh, sell them up front. So there's uh, also this year we've added a, a lunch room so you can go into this cafe called the Lunch Team Cafe, and basically 
you can have a meal there. You can do the tour of the museum. You can arrange to come and do a tour with me out down Chambers Cove where we can go out to the land. We can go out and have a look at the seascape, some beautiful scenery, some good stories to be told. And, it, and lots of great things that I've discovered. And if people want more information, how do they how do they find out about it? Is there a way a spot, a spot online where they can go for info? Online, you can. Uh, my Facebook page is uh, Laurentian Legacy Tours, and uh, so I got some information. And also, the Miners Museum has a web page uh, or a, a Facebook page, and uh, my phone number is uh, available. Can I give out? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So my phone number is 873-5463. Uh, I'm available all the time. I'm uh, fortunate enough to be retired and uh, going to dedicate <laughs> some time to this. And that's area code 709. Area yeah. code 709, sorry. Yeah. And so yeah. you can you can come out and you can hear the story of the incredible rescue <laughs> and the men from the mine saving those uh, those sailors and the Lanier Phillips story, which, which is a whole interview unto itself, I think. I agree. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible story, and the implications and the life of Lanier Phillips. Lanier Phillips became a a fantastic ambassador for the community of St. Lawrence and for Newfoundland generally. But his, uh, you know, go on YouTube and listen to that man talk about his uh, experiences in St. Lawrence and the whole humanity that he experienced as a 17-year-old African-American he experienced for his first time in St. Lawrence, and it changed his life. And well, on YouTube these days, I mean, it's just an amazing resource, and you can listen to his personal words. It's a fantastic experience. I feel I'm going to have to get you to come back, or we're going to have to do a part two and <laughs> talk about Lanier Phillips and the whole mining industry. We didn't get really get a chance to talk about that as well. So you're you're invited to come back. Thank you. I'm Dale Jarvis. And you've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR and Heritage NL. Thanks for listening.